We're focusing on two passages here this morning, one from Matthew chapter 19 and secondly from Ephesians chapter 5. Matthew chapter 19 can be found on page 824, the blue pew Bibles underneath the seat in front of you. This is a passage of Jesus' primary teaching on marriage. Follow along with me as I read. And the Pharisees came up to Jesus and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Well, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning... It was not so, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And the disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Let's pray for God's blessing on his word. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would send your spirit to open your word to us this morning, that we might understand your picture and the glory represented in marriage, and that you would speak to us in this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It was earlier this summer that Justice Kennedy in the majority opinion wrote, the right to marry is a fundamental, is a fundamental right inherent in the liberty of the person. And under the due process and equal protection clauses of the 14th Amendment, couples of the same sex may not be deprived of that right and that liberty. Same-sex couples may exercise the fundamental right to marry. And with that statement, five people redefined thousands of years of marriage, redefined the most fundamental element of society. Well, that is what the Supreme Court has to say about this, but here our question is, what does the Bible say about marriage? We're going to look at two truths and then a pathway forward in the midst of American marriage. As we look at this, and we look at, just to be clear what I'm focusing on this morning, I am not focusing on divorce, I'm not focusing on singleness, I'm not focusing on how to have a good marriage, though there will certainly be overtones of that. What we're focusing on here this morning is what does the Bible say about marriage, and what does marriage represent? So as we enter into this and begin to focus on this issue, the first thing that we need to focus on, and what Jesus calls us to focus on, is to focus on creation, not its corruption to focus on the creation of marriage, not upon the corruption of marriage. The Pharisees come to Jesus and they ask this question to test him. And they're trying to set a trap for him to see if Jesus would contradict the law of Moses. So they ask him this question, is it lawful to divorce a man, for, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, the reason why they're asking this question is because the Pharisees and the leaders and the men of the day and the society and mankind had corrupted marriage. And marriage had become distorted from God's intention and created design. Marriage had become distorted. Why? Because Jesus tells us in verse 9 that it became distorted because of the hardness of man's heart. Now, at debate in the midst of this trap that the Pharisees are trying to set for them, 
was a discussion among rabbis and among rabbinic teaching based upon something that was written in the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 24, there is a sentence in there that says that a man may divorce his wife if he finds some indecency within her. Um, now, with that term, some, indec- some indecency, there is a big debate as to what that meant. Now, there were certainly some who held that that indecency was restricted to sexual immorality. But there was a very prominent school, the Hillel School, which was very widely known and very prominent at the time of Jesus, who taught that some indecency, that a man could divorce his wife for some unseemly thing, or for some indecency. And what that meant was that a man was licensed, that is, that he was divinely sanctioned and divinely approved and divinely approved by God to divorce his wife for any unseemly thing, including have serving spoiled food, or burning the toast, or being childless, or if a man found another woman more attractive, more if a man found another woman to be more attractive than his wife, then he could be licensed by God, divinely appointed to divorce her and hand her a certificate of divorce. Not only that, but the corruption of marriage at the time that Jesus is speaking to this. The other thing that was going on was that if a wife committed adultery, she was to be taken out and stoned. Technically, the man was too, but it didn't always work that way. Instead, if a man committed adultery, it was viewed not as a violation of personal rights and not a violation against a person, an individual person, but it was viewed as a violation of property rights. That if a man committed adultery, it was violating someone's property, not violating another person. And so in the midst of the corruption of marriage that was going on at that day, Jesus comes in response, and they they ask him this question, and they are trying to trap him, but yes, also trying to understand marriage from the starting point of its corruption. And how Jesus responds, that Jesus says, listen, I'm not going to define marriage by its corruption. I'm not going to define marriage by what the culture has turned marriage into. Rather, we're going to look at the starting place for marriage, which is creation, not its corruption. And so Jesus says, let's go back to the foundation. Let's go back to God's created design. Let's go back to see God's intent in the original blueprint. Now, to understand what Jesus is doing is that Jesus is being radically In the most extreme order, he is being radically culturally progressive. He is empowering women. He is elevating the status of women in society at all these levels. He is being culturally progressive in the most radical form. But to be clear, Jesus is not being culturally progressive for the sake of progressivism, but he is being progressive to reestablish God's design that was founded at creation. And since creation, since God's design, yes, marriage has developed. Yes, marriage has changed. Yes, marriage has evolved. But almost in every situation, it has done so as a corruption of God's design. So here, Jesus is being culturally progressive, but he is being progressive to restore the goodness of God's created design. Well, how does Jesus respond? He answers this way. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. 
What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. What is Jesus affirming about God's created design for marriage? Yes, God created them male and female. He created them as gendered beings. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. That there is a, that each one of them equally bears the image of God. And yes, there is an aspect of their engenderedness being part of the image bearing that God has bestowed upon them. That both of them created in the image of God, both created as good, both male and female created as necessary and as valuable and as honorable and endowed with inherent dignity and worth. Both of them equal before God, equal as image bearers, equally charged to rule and to exercise dominion. Yet, they were not created as twins. They were not created identical. They were created distinct. They were created different as male and female designed to complement one another, designed to match one another, designed to perfectly fit together, and he created them male and female. And what it says here, answering the question about marriage, it says he created them male and female, and therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast, the old word there is cleave, leave and cleave, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And it is in marriage that one, that God uniquely takes a, uniquely unites a man and a woman together in, as one flesh, physically, emotionally, spiritually, psychologically. And aside from being pregnant, it is only in marriage, in the acts of marriage, is there a uh, lack of distinguishing where one person ends and another person begins. It is in marriage that God is bringing together the two halves of humanity, male and female, to form a family. And it is the fruit of their love, the fruit of their relationship, the fruit of their one fleshness, that literally produces children of one flesh, that have characteristics of both father and mother joined together in this child. And as God created and designed marriage for Adam, there was one and only one Eve. And for Eve, there was one and only one Adam. And yes, that is heterosexual monogamy. And anything else is a corruption of God's design. And quite frankly, this is not a complicated issue. There's not really much else to say about it. Is that that's how God made it, and that's how God created it, and anything else is a corruption of God's design. But let us understand how radical it is what Jesus is saying, and how progressive Jesus' teaching is in the midst of the corruption of the culture. Because after teaching God's design and the partnership of marriage, that marriage is about a a partnership before God and not about possession, after teaching this, the disciples respond in complete amazement. They say, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. That if I can't divorce my wife for whatever reason I want to, If I can't divorce my wife whenever I want to, for whatever reason, for whatever cause I might find, if I can't divorce my wife because I find somebody else more attractive, if I can't divorce my wife because of any reason that I want, if there really is a divine permanence to marriage, 
if the no-fault divorce laws in, at the present at the time, which is what essentially happened for the men, if the no-fault divorce laws aren't approved by God, if marriage isn't about me, it isn't about what I want, their conclusion is, it's just better not to marry. Remarkable. And what's happening here, as Jesus highlights this, is saying, if, that, if that's better, if it is better for you not to marry, then your focus clearly is upon the corruption and not upon God's creation of marriage. That's the first thing we need to look at. The second thing we need to look at here as we focus on marriage and what the Bible teaches about marriage is that, yes, God created it. Yes, God designed it. But the focus of marriage is on Christ and not the creature's. It is on Christ and not the creatures. We're going to look at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 32. And as we go into this, we're trying to get to Paul's point in 31 and 32, but we've got to work through these earlier verses to get there. And so Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 21, Paul writes in Scripture, he says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, and then the passage continues. Now, I just want to make clear, just or rather as an aside for some of you, some of your Bible translations will put the break at verse 21, and some of you will put the break, your Bibles put the break at verse 22, and attach verse 21 to verse 20. So after all this other teaching, he says, do so submitting out of one another to reverence for Christ. Verse 22 says, wives, submit to your husbands. And some Bible breaks put it up before, but I want to show you the Greek text that all these translations come from. I know you don't know Greek, but you do know Latin numbers. 19, 20, 21, 22, and 23. And what you'll see there is that there is 19 and 20, and then there is a break, and verse 21 and 22 follows it. 21 is a transition phrase, but you see where the break is and what all these translations are coming off of, okay? So, verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Um, actually, that's one other thought as we go into this. This picture here of submitting one another out of reverence for Christ What is Paul saying? He's saying, listen, husbands, wives, in all of life, for every Christian, we should be submitting to one another. Not just in marriage, not just another, but in every different walk of life, there should be a submission of one person to another person out of reverence for Christ. Because of what Jesus Christ has done for you, because he became servant of all, because he gave himself so that you you would have life, there should be an openness within us to serve anyone, to learn, to be corrected by anyone, regardless of age or gender or class or any other division, to submit to one another. Well, Paul's about to give instructions as to how this plays out in marriage. But he begins by saying, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Well, when there are couples, husbands and wives who are submitting to one another, it's a beautiful thing. Husbands saying, hey, we're actually finally getting to go out on an evening together. You know, it's been so long since we've been able to do this. Well, what do you want to do tonight? Well, I don't know. Why don't you pick the restaurant? Well, I don't know. I always pick the restaurant. I pick the last couple of restaurants. Why don't you pick the restaurant? Well, well, I, you know, I really just want to go where you want to go. But you know, honey, I get to go out so much more than you get to go out. You never really get to go out. Why don't you pick the restaurant? Well, I'm going to pick Chinese food, but I know you don't really like Chinese food. But it's okay. Well, if I pick Chinese food, why don't you pick the movie that we're going to watch? But the last five movies that we watch were like actions, and I know you don't like those action movies. Why don't we pick a chick flick? All right, well, but I don't want to just pick a chick flick and Chinese food. Those are the things that I want. How about what you want? Okay, it's not very efficient, but it's beautiful. It's a beautiful picture of a husband and a wife so desiring to serve one another, so desiring to love one another, to say, I really want to serve you. 
I really want to make you happy. I really want, I really want to love you. I really want to give you what you want. That's what I really, and it's a beautiful thing when husbands and wives are submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. But that's not Paul's point in this passage. Then Paul goes on to give some specific instructions, and he says this, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in every wives should submit in everything to their husbands. What is Paul saying here? Wives submit to your husband as to the Lord. Wives, love, respect, serve, honor your husband, not simply out of devotion to your husband, but out of devotion to Jesus Christ. Do it not because of your husband, but do it because you love Jesus. And to serve your husband, to honor your husband, and to build up your husband because, yes, you're married to him, but to do so because you love Jesus. Why, well, I submit to your husbands out of reverence for Christ. But again, that's not Paul's point. And then he goes on and describes husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ. And he gives much more instructions for husbands than he does for wives. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. So Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Serve your wife. Sacrifice for her. Do whatever it takes to love her and to nourish her into being a pure, spotless bride, even laying down your life for her, sacrificing yourself. You know, husbands hear this and they say things like, you know what? Many men would say, I would, I, would lay down my life for my, I would lay down my life for my wife. Not the other way around. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> I would lay down my wife for my life. Um, <laughs> he says, husbands, you know, men say, I would lay down my life for my wife. That's great. That's excellent. You should. But will you live for her? Will you live for her? You know, will you live to nourish and to cultivate her? Will you live to love her as Christ loves the church? Quite frankly, yes, it's a big sacrifice. But if you die for your wife, it's a one-time thing. But Christ is calling you to live for her. Husbands, will you live for your wife? And Paul says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. But again, that's not his point. That's not Paul's point in this passage. And he finally gets to it in verse 31. He says, therefore, why therefore? Everything that he's been saying, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. Therefore, how is that a therefore? Paul says, all of this is showing something greater. And what it is showing is that it's not about the creatures, but about the creator. Not about the creatures, but about Jesus Christ. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. 
You have here Paul is saying, he's saying, listen, all of this teaching about marriage, all of this instruction about marriage, all of this instruction about husbands and wives and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ isn't about you. It's about Christ and the church. That your marriage, that marriage in general, among Christians and among non-Christians, is to be a picture and a representation of Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. And as Paul ties this in in the instructions on marriage, where does he go back to? He doesn't look at the corruption of marriage. He goes back to creation. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Same thing that Jesus went back to. And Paul says, this is what it's about. This mystery is profound. What's the mystery? The mystery of marriage here. And Paul is saying the mystery of marriage refers to Christ and the church. What Paul is saying is that the marriage of the first couple, Adam and Eve, and all other marriages after that, including yours if you are married, all other marriages after that and marriage in general foreshadows Christ and his church. That marriage, because of creation, was put there to be a picture of what Jesus Christ would do for his bride, the church. And the focus of marriage is on Christ, not on the creatures. And so as Christian, so in a marriage, a Christian spouse is not only the most tangible representation of Jesus Christ to the other spouse, but also to the world. That marriage is a public event. That's why we have marriage ceremonies. Because yes, there is an intimacy exclusively reserved for marriage. But there is a public nature that marriage is to declare something. And what it is to declare is the wonders and glories of Jesus Christ and his church. And through marriage, especially Christian marriage, the world should know more clearly who God is and what Jesus Christ has done by looking at marriage Moreover, looking at your marriage, if you're married. That marriage is about Christ and his bride, the church. What does that mean? Is that everything that you see in good marriage, or should be in a marriage if you've only seen bad marriages, everything that you've seen, even if you're not married, everything that you've seen in marriage is a foreshadow of what Jesus Christ has done for his bride, the church. That the utter devotion, the unwavering affection, and the total faithfulness of marriage that should be there is a picture, a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ and with the love and, and the unwavering devotion and affection and total faithfulness that Jesus has for his bride, the church. He will not give his love to another. So think how this, think how marriage becomes a picture of what Jesus Christ has done. Sacrificial love. Jesus Christ submits himself to the needs of his bride, giving up himself, sacrificing himself for his one bride, being tortured for the sins of his bride, being murdered so that his bride might have life. How is that seen? It's seen in the sacrificial love of a husband for his wife, or of a wife for her husband, when a spouse gives of themselves at their expense, gives of themselves at their hurt, at their cost, to promote the purity of the other. What about um, being a perfect complement. It's seen how only Jesus Christ could perfectly meet the needs of his bride. 
and how only his bride can give the glory and honor that Jesus Christ deserves and follow him. It is seen when a husband is loving his wife and serving his wife and a wife is complimenting and serving her husband. That this sort of sacrifice and compliment is seen when a husband and wife make personal sacrifices, laying down their own desires. Why? To love the one upon whom they have set their affection. It is seen in all these things that all the good things of marriage are pictures of Jesus and his church. That marriage, like everything else in life, isn't about me and my glory, but it is about Jesus Christ and his glories. And for those here who are Christians, for those here who are married, for those who here are Christians, whether you are a Christian, whether you are married or not, this truth should radiate from every one of our homes. It should radiate from the homes of those who are single, who are preparing themselves just as the church prepares itself for its one and only bridegroom, Jesus Christ. It is seen in those who are married in their utter devotion of the utter devotion between the church and Christ itself. And so it happens that when you see beauty in marriage, when you see something that is beautiful, when you see a couple and you say, oh, isn't that sweet? Yes, say, oh, isn't that sweet? But also say, wow, what a glimpse of how much Jesus loves his bride. What a, pic- what a beautiful representation of what Jesus and his church and the utter devotion they have for one another. What a, beaut- what a small fragment to begin to understand how much Jesus Christ has sacrificed for his bride, the church. You see, it is in the unity and the sacrifice and the dependence and the service of marriage that we begin to comprehend in a real and tangible way the, the service and the love and the sacrifice between Jesus and his church. And it is for this reason of what marriage not only was created to be, but how marriage is a sign of Jesus Christ and just points to the glory of Jesus Christ. It is for this reason why anything else that diminishes God's design for marriage not only diminishes, diminishes marriage, but diminishes Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. We need to focus on creation, not its corruption. Focus on Christ, not the creatures. Well, in the midst of all this, how do we move forward in the midst of navigating the new marriage in America? Several things, five things in particular. Number one is that Christians must radiate Christ in marriage, whether you are married or whether you are single. It needs to be seen, that is, visible. Is that this is what marriage is about. It's about Jesus Christ and his church. And your marriage is a public declaration and witness that people should look at you between husband and wife and say, I get an understanding now. I can see now what Jesus Christ has done because I look at your marriage. To look at someone who is single and say, I can see now the way that you have preserved yourself, the way that you love Jesus, the way that you prepared yourself for the person that you may, hopefully, may marry. I can see how Jesus Christ is preparing the church for the wedding feast. I can see that now. Christians must radiate Christ in their marriage. And quite frankly, it's already happening that permanent, stable marriages will seem very bizarre. 
they will seem very bizarre. It is only as God's design shines will the corruptions and counterfeits be seen clearly. Secondly, Christians need to articulate the meaning of marriage. People will not agree. It's not just simply that people won't agree, but people will not understand God's design for marriage. Why? Because like the Pharisees and like the Jews at the time, they were only trying to make sense out of the corruption of marriage. They were trying to make sense of how does the corruption and the brokenness and brokenness of our design, how do we make sense of that? And that becomes the starting point. People will not inherently understand God's design for marriage. And so we need to talk about marriage not simply in terms of human flourishing, not simply in terms of the institutional nature and foundations of society, but we need to talk about marriage as a picture of Christ. How marriage is so beautiful and shows a picture of how beautiful and loving and gracious and self-sacrificial our Savior is. And if you think that's difficult or, untalk- or difficult or uncomfortable to talk about God's design for marriage between one man and one woman in a permanent bond of marriage, if you think that's difficult and uncomfortable to talk about, brothers, sisters, we believe things that are a lot stranger than that. Okay? I mean, we believe in things far weirder than a man and a woman being married together. We believe that there is a God became man in the person of Jesus Christ who died on the cross, was buried in the ground, rose from the grave, ascended into heaven, that he's going to return after 2,000 years. And when he comes, a new city is going to fall out of the sky. And that through believing in this, that we are forgiven, we are reconciled to God, and this becomes the way of reconciliation to, to not only us and not only one another, but also the restoration of the entire cosmos. We believe things far stranger than that. Okay, But we need to embrace and articulate the meaning of marriage and embrace the hope of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, is that Christians need to enter into the mess of American marriages. What I've described here is God's design pointing forward to Christ and the church. Everything else will fall short and will create disappointment and hurt in its corruption. And we must be prepared and I know many of you are doing this, who are journeying with people in and through their relational and sexual brokenness. It's what the gospel calls us to do, that people would find their hope and healing and satisfaction in Jesus Christ. Russell Moore, the current president of the Southern Baptist Convention, in his op-ed in the Washington Post on the day that the Supreme Court ruling came out, wrote this. He says, there are two sorts of churches that will not be able to reach the sexual revolution's refugees. One, a church that has given up on the truth of the scriptures, including on marriage and sexuality, and has nothing to say to a fallen world. And two, a church that screams with outrage at those who disagree will have nothing to say to those who are looking for a new birth. We must stand with conviction and with kindness, and with truth, and with grace. We must hold to our views and love those who hate us for them. We must not only speak Christian truths, we must speak with a Christian accent. We must say what Jesus has revealed, and we must say those things the way Jesus does, with mercy and with an invitation to new life. Christians should enter into the mess of American marriages. Fourth, Christians don't need a Christian culture to thrive. What a lot of people are upset about and a lot of Christians are upset about is not so much the change in marriage, they're upset about the change of their position in society. 
And Christians don't need a Christian culture to survive. And in fact, around the world, Christianity thrives the most when it stands in sharp contrast to the culture around us and around it. It's exactly what happened in Philippi, what happened in Ephesus, what happened in Corinth, and what is happening today in China and what is happening in India. Is that we are called as the Church of Christ to be a people set apart to be so that the glory of God, His grace, and his mercy and his truth might be a place of life and give life to others. So these four things, Christians don't need Christian culture to thrive, and probably most obviously and most simply, Christians must not freak out. The Supreme Court can do a lot of things, but it cannot contain the Holy Spirit, it cannot put Jesus Christ back in the tomb, and it cannot prevent the coming of the kingdom of God. And it cannot thwart the prayers of God's people who cry out, Our Father who art in heaven, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It is powerless to do so. And as Isaiah 40 reminds us, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but it is not the word of the Supreme Court that lasts forever. Rather, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. What does that mean for us? It means that we should focus on the marriage. We should rejoice in the marriage of Jesus Christ to his, to his bride, the church. And we should yearn for that glory to be seen in our marriages and in the marriages around us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you. And Lord, we cry out, for your redemption, to work powerfully in our own own corruption. Father, I'm not just speaking about the corruption that's in our world, I'm speaking about the corruption that's in my own heart and in my own relationships. Father, I cry out to you for your spirit to work and to redeem and to renew and to restore the way I use relationships for my own selfish gratification. And Father, we do pray that you would send your spirit to work within us, that our lives, whether single or married, would reflect the glory pictured in marriage between Christ and his church. Father, for those here who are struggling in the midst of the corruption of this world, in the midst of the brokenness, in the midst of the pain and the hurt, Father, would your spirit meet them and hold them and comfort them and draw them to the hope and healing that is found and comes through the working of your Holy Spirit in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Father, we cry out for him and for his spirit to do his work in our midst. Lord, we pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, who is our Redeemer, our Restorer, and yes, our Heavenly Husband and Bridegroom, who we long to see face to face. In his name we pray, amen.